on July 21st, 1861, the first battle of Bull Run was fought near Washington, D.C. This was the first battle of what is known as the American Civil War, which pitted the northern states of the United States against the southern states. The northern states of the U.S. fought against the southern states. At the start of the Civil War, many Americans believed that the conflict between the North and the South would be a relatively short conflict and that it would be relatively bloodless. Few expected the four years of brutal and very bloody warfare that would follow and that would end up claiming the lives of more than 600,000 Americans. So as the Union Army, which is the army of the northern states, marched out of Washington, D.C. to take part in the first Battle of Bull Run, which took place not too far away, many spectators followed them. Men, women, children, as well as a number of U.S. congressmen followed the army out to watch the battle. They brought picnic baskets and binoculars with them to watch what they thought would be a quick, easy, and rather painless Union victory. They thought it would be an easy victory of the Army of the North against the Army of the South. Their expectations were soon shattered. They quickly realized that war is not a spectator sport. The battle became quite intense. The Union Army was forced to retreat a retreat that actually quickly became a panicked dash back to Washington, D.C. The spectators who had come to watch, they themselves had to abandon their picnic baskets and flee back to the city. One U.S. congressman who had gone to watch the battle was captured and became a prisoner of war. Well, the first battle of Bull Run was a reality check for those spectators. They were exposed to the horrors of war. A battle was also a reality check for the country. Nearly 5,000 soldiers were killed or wounded that day, making it clear that the Civil War was not going to be the short and relatively bloodless conflict that so many thought. It was a reality check. Our text for today is Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 62. You can go ahead and turn there with me in your Bibles, or you can find the text in your bulletin. Uh, in this passage... Jesus deals a reality check to his disciples and to all who wish to follow him. His disciples expected that following Jesus would be something of, a, of an easy road, a triumphal road. But he reset their expectations for the Christian life, teaching them what it truly looks like to follow him. Jesus makes it clear in this text that there is a cost to discipleship. Following him would be hard, and it would require sacrifice. Friends, the main idea of this text, and therefore this sermon, is that following Jesus is hard. But it is worth the cost. Following Jesus is hard, but it is worth the cost. And some of the questions for you to ask yourself this morning as we study this passage are, what are my own expectations for the Christian life? Do I need a reality check? Do I need my expectations reset? Am I willing to bear the cost of discipleship? So please follow along as I read, starting in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. When the days were coming to a close for him, Jesus, to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of himself, and on the way they entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But they did not welcome him, because he determined to journey to Jerusalem. 
When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. As they were traveling on the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus told him, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Then he said to another, follow me. Lord, he said, first let me go bury my father. But he told him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and spread the news of the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to those at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I have three points to help us understand this passage this morning and to understand Jesus's message to his disciples. The first is Jesus's expectation. That's verse 51. Second is wrong expectations. That's verses 52 through 56. And then resetting expectations. It's verses 57 through 62. Jesus's expectation, wrong expectation, and then resetting expectations. So first, Jesus's own expectation. Well, the Gospel of Luke is one of the four Gospels, one of the four accounts of Jesus's life that we have in the Bible. If you were here at the church last year, you may remember that we studied the first nine chapters of Luke or at least most of them. We studied up to where we are now. And those previous chapters recounted Jesus' birth, but they mainly focused on Jesus' ministry in the region of Galilee, the region of Israel in which Jesus himself grew up. In those first nine chapters of Luke, Jesus selected his disciples, and he performed many signs and wonders. He performed many miracles. He cast out many demons, showing his power and his authority over the spiritual realm. He healed a number of people of sicknesses and disease. He showed his power over nature by calming storms, by calming the wind and the waves. He demonstrated his own power and authority over death by raising people back to life. And Jesus showed that he even had the power and authority to forgive sins. These signs and wonders, they revealed Jesus' compassion for the people to whom he ministered. But more than that, they reveal Jesus' power and his glory as the Son of God. They prove that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, and that he was indeed God himself who had come to earth, and that Jesus was worthy of faith and trust. Well, as we come to our verses for this morning, Jesus' ministry in Galilee has come to an end. Jesus began journeying to Jerusalem, because he knew the time for him to be taken up, taken up back to heaven, was drawing near. In other words, Jesus knew that his death was drawing near. Jesus would have to suffer the agony of death on a cross before enjoying the glory of being taken back up to his father's side. Well, friends, what I think Luke wants you to notice here in verse 51 is that Jesus knew he would be crucified. Jesus knew he would be crucified. This was all part of God's plan. Jesus willingly suffered and died. Look at verse 51. Luke wrote that Jesus determined to journey to Jerusalem. It was his purpose and plan. Two times previously in chapter 9, Jesus had predicted his own death already to his disciples. 
And in Luke chapter 9, verse 22, Jesus even said that his death and resurrection were necessary. In the Gospel of John, another one of the accounts of Jesus' life that we have in the Bible, Jesus says this in chapter 10. He says, I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have a right to lay it down, and I have a right to take it up again. Friends, Jesus' death was a willing choice. It was part of God's sovereign plan. In Acts 2.23, Luke, the same Luke who wrote this gospel, he wrote that Jesus' betrayal and Jesus' crucifixion were part of God's determined plan. Jesus' death was not a surprise to our Heavenly Father. It was an act of God's love planned before the foundation of the world for sinful humanity. Friends, Luke wants you to see that Jesus' own expectation was that he would suffer and die in order to redeem all people who would repent of their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, how should you respond to this truth that Jesus willingly died for you and that out of his love God planned your redemption before time began? Have you ever considered that fact, that before time began, God planned your redemption? Friends, first, simply marvel at Jesus' love for you, that he willingly took your place on the cross. John 15, 13, no one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. But friends, this truth should also build your trust and confidence in God, that he is providentially ordering all events. He's providentially ordering everything that happens in the world. Nothing can happen to you outside of his knowledge or his control. The crucifixion was his plan. It was not an example of Satan or sinful people somehow getting the best of God and then God somehow coming out and figuring out how to make something good come from it. No, it was God, part of God's plan before the foundation of the world. Brothers and sisters, you can have confidence that God is every bit as much in control of the events and circumstances of your life as he was in control of the crucifixion. You can trust him. And that for that reason, you can follow him even when the road is difficult. Jesus knew that he must suffer before his glory, before he was raised back up to the Father's side. Christian, the same thing is true for you. Present suffering leads to future glory. Those who share in the sufferings of Christ, as Paul puts it, will also share in his glory. Well, third... Jesus' willingness to suffer for you is your model for the Christian life. You can willingly sacrifice to follow him because of what he sacrificed for you. Friends, Jesus knew that his road led to the cross. But it does not seem from our text that the disciples fully grasped this message yet. And that leads us to the second point of the sermon, wrong expectations. Look with me again, starting in verse 52. He sent messengers ahead of himself, and on the way they entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But they did not welcome him because he determined to journey to Jerusalem. 
When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. Jesus and his disciples were now hitting the road to Jerusalem, and so Jesus sends messengers ahead of himself to make preparations for the journey. But these preparations were not limited to like booking hotel rooms, buying groceries, finding the best places to eat. No, these messengers went ahead of Jesus proclaiming the gospel message that Jesus himself would bring. They were preparing the hearts of the people to listen to the message of Jesus. In this journey from Galilee, which was in the north of Israel, to Jerusalem, which was in the south, Jesus and his disciples would have to pass through the region of Samaria that lay in between. Now you should know that there was a great deal of hatred, a great deal of animosity between the Samaritans and the people of Israel. Samaria was originally part of the northern kingdom of Israel that had been conquered by the Assyrian Empire about 700 years before Jesus was born. Now, when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom, they took the people of Samaria, they took the Jews living there, most of them, out of the land, and they scattered them throughout the Assyrian Empire. They then took foreigners, non-Jews, other peoples, and they brought them in to inhabit the land of Samaria. Well, these people that were brought in and intermarried with the Jews that were left behind, and the Samaritans were therefore scornfully despised. They were looked down on by the people of Israel as something of half-breeds. They weren't fully Jew. On top of that ethnic and, and racial tension between the regions, there was a religious and political tension between the two regions as well. Uh, this explains the less than warm welcome that Jesus and his disciples received, and also probably something of the harsh response of James and John. So the Samaritans learn that Jesus is just traveling through Samaria on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover festival, and they want nothing to do with him. There's actually a history of the Samaritans mistreating and harassing the people of Israel as they would travel to Jerusalem for some of the festivals and feasts. In response to the Samaritans' lack of welcome to Jesus, James and John are ready to see fire come down from heaven and consume the Samaritans, much like Elijah called down fire from heaven in those verses that Juliet just read for us from 2 Kings. I don't know about you, but when I first read that from James and John, their reaction, I think my reaction is to say something like, you know, hold up there, James and John, let's not get too excited. It seems like a bit of, a, of an overreaction that James and John have here in response to the Samaritans. And how would you like it if next time that you forgot or, or failed to extend a dinner invitation to someone, uh, they called down fire from heaven to consume you in your home? That's kind of the equivalent of what is going on with James and John here. Well, as we see in Jesus' rebuke of them, uh, the response of James and John was an overreaction but perhaps not precisely for the reasons that we might first be inclined to think. Now, James and John, I think, rightly understood that the Samaritans' lack of welcome of these messengers that Jesus sent before him was rightly a rejection of Jesus himself. And we see that in verse 53 of our text. It says, they did not welcome him, Jesus. 
Friends, rejecting Jesus is a serious thing. It is a rejection of God himself. Rejecting Jesus is a serious thing. I mean, is not that why those soldiers who approached Elijah were consumed? They stood opposed to God. Friends, God is just to judge those who reject him. God is just to judge those who do not welcome him. In the Old Testament, God used his people Israel and his prophets sometimes to carry out those judgments in a real, physical sense, like we see in Elijah's day. God has not given that task to his followers today. God has not given that task to the church. But in the verses that we will look at next week, Jesus sends 72 disciples out as messengers to the towns where he is about to go. That's what we're going to see in the first part of Luke chapter 10. But look at what he tells these 72 disciples that he sends out in Luke chapter 10, verses 10 through 12. This is Jesus' instructions to them. When you enter any town and they do not welcome you, Go out into the streets and say, we are wiping off even the dust of your town that clings to our feet as a witness against you. Know this for certain, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, on that day, it will be more tolerable for Sodom than for that town. Friends, what happened to Sodom? A fire and sulfur came down from heaven and consumed that town. That's what happened to Sodom. So then, if we see these verses in Luke chapter 10, we might be wondering, well, what exactly is the problem with the response of James and John? Jesus says that it's going to be more tolerable for Sodom on the day of judgment than these towns who reject him. Why does Jesus rebuke them? I believe it's because James and John had wrong expectations for the Christian life. They had wrong expectations about the kingdom of God. They thought this kingdom was going to be set up here and now. I don't think they understood that it was a spiritual kingdom. That Jesus' judgment was in the future. They were sinfully judging those who were not yet part of God's kingdom. Friends, God does not call the church to execute his judgment. That he calls his people today to love their enemies. Now, many Israelites, perhaps most in Jesus' day, were looking for a Messiah, a Savior that was going to come and restore Israel's former glory, that was going to come and restore the nation's former glory. They were looking for a warrior king who would throw off their Roman rulers and destroy all the enemies of Israel. It seems to be the expectation of James and John. They seem to be eagerly anticipating the day when Jesus will take up his sword and that he will strike down all of his enemies and all of their enemies, to include the Samaritans. They knew that they were part of Jesus' inner circle. Surely when this day comes, they would be given positions of power and influence, authority and honor. James and John were not expecting Jesus' suffering and death on the cross. No, instead they seemed to be anticipating Jesus' imminent triumph in glory. And they were expecting to share in that triumph in glory. They did not expect that Jesus' triumph would come in a very unexpected way. 
come through his death and his suffering on the cross. Now, their mindsets seem to be something like those spectators that went to witness the first battle of Bull Run. They were just waiting for the quick and the sure triumph that was to come. They thought that following Jesus would bring near-term, earthly reward. They did not understand that Jesus had come to suffer and die for his people and that he would call his followers to share in that suffering. Friends, they did not understand the cost of discipleship. They did not understand their own need to sacrifice for others, even their enemies. But Jesus rebuked them. He gave them a reality check. He rebuked their misunderstanding of the kingdom of God, their misunderstanding that this was going to be a physical, not a spiritual kingdom. He rebuked their misunderstanding of his own mission on earth. He rebuked their attitude of superiority and judgment towards the Samaritans, teaching them to leave judgment in God's hands. They were not Elijah, and the church is not Israel. Friends, true faith in Jesus breeds compassion and love for others, not judgment and hate towards others. It breeds an attitude of humility, not an attitude of superiority. James and John had not yet fully grasped this truth. They needed a reality check. Brothers and sisters, do you need a reality check? Can you think of someone who has wronged you? Perhaps someone who just does not like you. And what is your attitude towards those people? Just be honest with yourself. How would you react if something bad happened to them? Would you secretly cheer? Would you think they got what they deserved? Or would you be filled with compassion? Friends, what about your, your attitude towards those who come from a different place than your own? Or who come from a, a different tribe? or perhaps a a different country that has mistreated your people or your nation or your tribe in the past? Would you like to see the fire and judgment of heaven come down and consume them? Friends, as followers of Jesus Christ, you are not called to look for or pray for or eagerly anticipate the suffering and destruction of those who have wronged you or those who do not like you. No, you are to seek their good and pray for their salvation. We leave judgment in the hands of God. Friends, we can take comfort as Christians that God will one day put all things right. It is a comfort of the Christian faith that God will one day judge all sin and wrongdoing and he will one day put things right. But right now we are to leave judgment in the hands of God. Jesus himself taught this back in Luke chapter 6. He did not command his disciples to rain down fire on their enemies. But rather, he commanded his disciples to love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Brothers and sisters, is this not how Jesus treated us who were once his enemies? The Bible says that at one point in time, we were all enemies of God. Well, how surprised must James and John have been when they learned that the kingdom of heaven would not just include Israelites, but people from every tribe and tongue and nation. How surprised must they have been when Jesus commanded them in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, 
and to the ends of the earth. The gospel was not just for them. It was for the hated Samaritans, too. Friends, the gospel is a message of reconciliation. A a reconciliation between God and man. But once that reconciliation happens, also between man and man. Brothers and sisters, our job is not to judge our enemies. We can leave judgment in the hands of God. Our job is to love them, to take the gospel to them, praying that those who are our enemies will become our brothers and sisters in Christ. Friends, there is a sense in which a lack of evangelism, a lack of a willingness to share the gospel, it shows a contempt for others. It shows a a lack of love for others. Friends, when we do not share the gospel with others, we're essentially saying, look, I'm sure glad I am saved. But as for you, good luck with that fire from heaven that's coming. Friends, fire and judgment did not come down that day on the people of Samaria. But they did experience something of the consequences of their sin. They did experience something of the judgment of God. Just look at verse 56. Jesus and his disciples went to another village. Had they welcomed Jesus? Presumably they would have sat under his teaching, experienced his healing, and perhaps many would have turned from their sins and followed him. But instead, Jesus went to another village. Friends, if you are here today and not a Christian, Do not make the same mistake as the Samaritans. Do not reject Jesus. Do not reject the message of the gospel. You can experience his love and his compassion now. Friends, there is great blessing and reward in following Jesus now. There's a much greater blessing and reward to come, but there is blessing and reward even now. Fire did not come down from heaven that day to consume the Samaritans, but Jesus did say in Luke chapter 10, verse 12, That there would be a day that would be more tolerable for Sodom than for those who would not welcome him and welcome the message of the gospel. Friends, there is a day of God's judgment that is coming. Your life will end. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. It may not be next week or next year. It may be 50 years from now. But one day you will face God's judgment. And the only thing that will save you is the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross. Friends, he was judged that you might not be. So I urge you to not make the mistake of the Samaritans, but to welcome him today. To turn to him in repentance and faith today. Jesus first rebuked the wrong expectation of James and John. But then he went to work resetting their expectations and resetting the expectations of all those who would follow him. Look with me again at at verse 57. As they were traveling on the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus told him, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Then he said to another, follow me. Lord, he said, first let me go bury my father. But he told him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and spread the news of the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go and say goodbye to those at my house. But Jesus said to him, 
No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Friends, the reality check that Jesus gave in these verses is that the Christian life is not easy. But the Christian life is hard. This teaching has really been a theme of this section of Luke. If you were to look back at Luke chapter 9, verse 23, which immediately followed Jesus' first prediction of his own death, this is what Jesus told his disciples. He said, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. In other words, anyone who wants to follow me must be willing to sacrifice. Anyone who wants to follow me must be willing to share in my sufferings. They must be willing to take up their cross daily and follow me. As one commentator put it, these verses that we're studying this morning teach that discipleship involves the sacrifice of comfort and security, family ties, and family affection. But brothers and sisters, this type of sacrifice is worth it because those who share in Christ's sufferings will also share in his glory. Athletes go through the hard work of of training and of developing their body and developing endurance and building up the skills they need for their sports so that they will perform well in their games and enjoy those games. Medical doctors go through the hard work of many years of study and internships so that one day they might be able to save lives. Friends, so Christians go through the hard work of living as strangers and exiles in this sin-filled world, preparing themselves for the day of eternity. Friends, following Jesus is hard, but it is worth it because Jesus is worth it. He is our prize and reward. There is coming a day when we will get to see our God face to face and dwell with him for all eternity. His glorious presence will banish all sickness and death. It will banish all our anxiety and fear, all our tears and our sorrow. But that day is not today. So before we look at these verses in detail, it is worth asking, well, Christian, what are your own expectations for the Christian life? Was your expectation that everything in your life would immediately be better when you became a Christian? Did you come to Jesus expecting that all your earthly problems would immediately just melt away? Maybe you were taught the reason for coming to Jesus is that he promises material and financial rewards to those who show enough faith. Spoiler alert, he does not promise that. Jesus' words in these verses are here to give you a reality check and to reset your expectations. As one pastor put it, it seems to me that most Christians think of conversion as so magically wonderful and radical that once a sinner is saved, most all, if not all, of their problems are solved. The hard part in the minds of many Christians is just getting the person to commit. But Jesus' words remind us that committing to follow him is when the hard part begins. But friends, again, it is worth it. The Christian life is difficult, but it is not second rate. The Christian life is difficult, but it is not second best. No, the sufferings of the Christian life ultimately point you away from the inferior 
the inferior, the far inferior pleasures of this earth. They teach you not to find your joy and fulfillment in material blessings, in the things of this earth, but to find your satisfaction in the only one who can truly satisfy. That's Jesus himself. Friends, there is no higher joy than knowing and experiencing God. That is what he has created us for. You were made to find your satisfaction in him. And friends, that is what Christians get in part now. And we will get in full on the day we go to be with him. Friends, the sacrifices of following Jesus come with the joy of discovering that we do not need any of those things that we sacrifice. The sacrifices of following Jesus come with the joy of discovering that we do not need any of those things we sacrifice. We simply need Jesus. He is better. He is the fountain of all joy and goodness and life and rest and peace. But friends, to get to him, you must be willing to take up your cross daily and follow. In these verses, Jesus was resetting the expectations of his disciples by teaching them the nature of true discipleship. Look at verse 57. As Jesus and his disciples were traveling, someone told Jesus that he would follow him wherever he goes. He seems to be a, a welcome contrast to those people in the village of the Samaritans. At least outwardly, he seemed willing to follow Jesus. But Jesus wanted to first make sure that he understood the cost of discipleship. Brothers and sisters, in our own evangelism, we do not want to present a false picture of the Christian life. We need to be honest about the cost of discipleship. But Jesus made the cost clear to this individual. He told him that following him would not be a life of comfort and ease. Far from it. Jesus' own life was a model of this. Jesus did not live in comfort and ease, but traveled during his earthly ministry. He did not have a permanent place in which he was to dwell, a place to call his own. Jesus was telling this individual that he or she must be willing to make similar sacrifices. But that is not all. The fact that Jesus did not have a place to lay his head was also a reminder of the rejection that he faced in that Samaritan town and the rejection that Jesus so often faced. My friends, Jesus did not have a place to lay his head because many rejected him, just as many would reject his followers. Now that day when Jesus was born on Christmas and Joseph and Mary were turned away from place after place because there was no room and Jesus had to be born and laid in a manger, just a small picture of what Jesus' ministry would look like. He would not have a place to lay his head. Jesus was giving the man a reality check. After he made the true cost of discipleship clear, Jesus turned to another man, and right after saying this, then called to him and said, follow me. Well, instead of dropping everything and immediately following, as we see so many of Jesus' disciples do, well, this man asked for permission to go bury his father first. A request that Jesus refused. And I think this request seems fairly reasonable to us. But this is where some understanding of Jewish cultural customs is helpful. As one commentator puts it, For a Jew, burying a parent was a religious duty having precedence over every, everything else. Only in the case of a temporary Nazarite vow or if one were the high priest, could one be freed from this duty? Jesus demands an allegiance transcending even this greatest of family obligations. 
Jesus demands an allegiance transcending even this greatest of family obligations. In other words, Jesus was teaching that following him is a matter of priorities. Jesus was teaching him that following him must take priority over any other religious or cultural obligation. Therefore, his meaning, as one commentator put it, was let the spiritually dead go bury their physical dead. You follow me. He was teaching him that following him and sharing the news of the kingdom of God must take priority over everything else in your life. Oftentimes, that is not going to mean that we cannot bury our parents. But we must be willing to follow Jesus over everything else. Friends, can you say that this is true of your own life? What is your highest priority? Friends, maybe you think, ah, I will wholeheartedly follow follow you, Jesus. I will follow you with my whole heart. Just let me go build my career first. Or maybe, yes, I will follow you, Jesus, as soon as life gets a little less busy. When the kids get a little older, when I'm finished raising them, when I don't have so many responsibilities as I have now, then I will have time to follow you. Or maybe, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you and I will follow you with my whole heart. But let me just go first enjoy my life a little bit. I'm young. I want to go experience a little bit of life. I want to go have a little bit of fun before I have a family. I will follow you. Just let me go do these other things first. Friends, maybe in your daily life, maybe you say something like, Yes, Jesus, I know that following you is important. I know reading my Bible is important. I know I should pray. I know it's good to come to church. I'll do those things when I'm not so tired. Just let me sleep a little bit first. Or when I'm not so busy. There are other things that need to get done first. Friends, what are your priorities? If you want to know, just go look at the way that you spend your time. Well, that brings us to the last man in our story, the one that we find in verse 61. After Jesus had told one man to not go bury his father, another man said that he would follow Jesus, but he, just, he just wanted to go say goodbye to his family first. I don't need to bury anybody, I just want to go say goodbye. But Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Friends, Jesus is not saying it is a sin to say goodbye to your family and friends. My wife, Delane, her parents were just here. They just left earlier this week. And we shared a tearful goodbye as they left. That was right. That was good. The point Jesus was making is that no one is fit to be his follower who looks back longingly at the things that they left behind in order to follow Jesus. Someone who looks back with regret at the things that they had to leave behind in order to follow Jesus. Now, friends, have you ever done something that you immediately regretted? Maybe you had to choose between, like, going and running a 5K with some of your friends or going out to a nice meal or coffee with some of your other friends. You got one group doing one thing, one group doing the other. You choose the 5K. As soon as you get out there, the sun's beating down on you, you're sweating, you start to get tired, you think, what was I thinking? I could be sitting in the air conditioning right now, relaxing, Enjoying some good food or some good coffee and some good conversation. 
Friends, it is that attitude, it is that kind of attitude towards the Christian life that Jesus is rebuking here. An attitude that looks back with some level of regret or longing for the things you had to give up to follow. Whether that's earthly treasures, like money, or fame, power, or influence. Maybe for some of you it's relationships with friends and family who have rejected you for following Jesus. But most especially, I think, it's when we look back longingly at our former life of sin. That we live with some level of regret. Jesus calls us to live holy lives, and we can't do some of the things that we used to do. Friends, it's not not what Israel did after after their deliverance from Egypt. Did they not look back longingly at their former life of slavery? They wanted to return to Egypt as soon as life got hard, and the cost and difficulties of following God became clear. Brothers and sisters, what about you? Do you look back longingly at your previous life of sin? Are you ever tempted to say, you know what, life was so much easier and perhaps even more fun when I got to do whatever I wanted with no regard to whether it was pleasing to the Lord? Brothers and sisters, have you stopped fighting against your sin? Do you wish you could still go do some of the same things with the same people you used to? Do you regret following Jesus? Friends, the truth is, if we find Jesus to be our highest good, the best and most glorious thing we could ever find, which he is, we will not care what we had to leave behind in order to follow him. Let me say that again. If you find Jesus to be your highest good, the best and most glorious thing you could ever find, and that is what Jesus is, then you will not care what you left behind in order to follow him. The cost of discipleship will seem small. As the Apostle Paul said, our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So friends, ask yourself, what is it that truly has a hold on your heart? Is it Jesus? Or is it something else? Who is it? Or what is it that your heart truly desires? Friends, following Jesus is hard. It is hard to give up your sin. It is hard to give up friends if that is what is required. It is hard to leave family behind who may reject you for following Jesus. It may be hard to leave family behind because you are now part of the family of God. Friends, it is hard to have your desires change. But friends, if you are not willing to leave anything behind to follow Jesus, you cannot be his disciple. If you are not willing to leave anything behind in order to follow Jesus, you cannot be his disciple. Friends, if you call yourself a Christian, but if you cannot think of any sacrifice you have made to follow Jesus, even if it is just giving up some former sin, that is a real sacrifice. But if you cannot think of any sacrifice you have made to follow Jesus, perhaps you should ask if you're truly one of his followers. Friends, following Jesus is hard. But it is worth it. There is no higher good than Jesus. And that is what you get when you follow him. You get God himself. So as I close, let me simply ask you. What wrong expectations might you have about the Christian life? 
do you need a reality check? Friends, are you willing to give up everything and follow Jesus if that is what is required? Friends, we don't have to all give up the same things. Some of us are called to give up more than others, but are you willing to give up everything and follow Jesus if that is what is required? What would the desires of your heart reveal? What would the ways that you spend your time and energy and even money reveal? Friends, are you willing to bear the cost of discipleship? Are you willing to sacrifice and suffer now that you might enjoy eternal reward? Let's pray.